Assalamu alaikum, hello and welcome to the Voice of Islam Living History Program. My name is Dr. Muhammad Iqbal and I'll be your host for this program. As listeners will know, the Living History team have embarked on a seven-part series on the history of money and trade. In the modern world, there is a common saying, especially in the West, that money makes the world go round. The phrase basically means that everything in this world would stop without money. And to some extent, this statement is true. Without money, you cannot afford a shelter on your head, buy the food to survive, or go from point A to point B, etc. In part one of this series, entitled Cows and Crops to Coin Trade, my fellow panelists and I explored the origins of early trade in money. In part two, entitled The Rise of the Great Eurasian Empires, we looked at the way gold and silver took center stage in trade and conquest that shaped many of the large and influential empires. In part three, entitled Worlds of Conquerors, Prophets and Reformers, we looked at the role religion played in shaping empires and trade between nations and empires. In particular, we looked at the interaction between the Romans and the Jewish people, leading to the rise of Christianity. We also looked briefly at the rise of Islam. In part four, entitled Islamic Civilization, Bridge Between East and West, we looked at how the Muslims, during the Golden Age of Islam, picked up new ideas from India, China and the Greeks, and how they refined many of these and passed them on to Europe, especially the concept of zero in mathematics. We also looked at the powerful economies of the Ottoman Safavid and Mughal empires, as well as the Chinese Yuan and the Ming dynasties. In part 5, The Making of a European World, we looked at the rise of the European empires, starting with the Portuguese and the Spanish, and going on to the Dutch, the French and the Great British Empire. Voyages of discovery and the search for gold, silver and slaves, of course. And finally, we looked at the rise of Russia, Germany and the United States, which came to challenge Britain's hegemony in a world. A world, indeed, that was dominated by Europe. Today's program is part six of this seven-part series, entitled The Clash of Capitalism and Communism. We will look at the clash of capitalism across Europe and much of the world that led to two world wars and the rise of the United States as the superpower and its confrontation with communism in Russia and China in particular. We will also explore the tensions and conflicts between the West and the Muslim world and between the West and China and Russia and the critical role played by currency wars and trade wars. So to explore these fascinating developments, I'm joined by my panelists, Arif Ahmed and Munir Ahmed. Both of you, welcome. Assalamualaikum. Assalamualaikum. Um, just to set the scene for this particular part of the series, throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, the European powers were in ascendancy, and we covered that in the last program. They dominated the 19th century as never before. And as I said, we discussed this in the last program. However, this time they were joined by another major power, an offshoot of European power, the United States of America. Arif, just take us through this important development. Yes, so I think it's uh, uh, important to understand what the key factors uh, that allowed Western powers to take such a dominant position. And these were the technical and scientific breakthroughs that assured uh, military supremacy. Um, however, they also had another innovation in the form of commerce, which allowed them to entrench their dominant position on the world stage. Uh, and they adopted the model of capitalism, which resulted in highly productive factories, department stores, chains of high street shops, etc. And also ingenious marketing methods and popular advertising made goods available to all and increased the demand for new products across global markets. Backed up by a highly diversified and enlarged banking system, access to finance was readily available to entrepreneurs and to nations that wanted to expand. Um, so at home, rising productivity uh, produced a boom in real wages, thus taking countless people out of poverty uh, and creating a culture of popular consumerism. Although in the countryside there were still pockets of poverty, uh, the major cities started booming under this system. Britain, of course, was the sort of key nation in all this. And during the 
19th century, despite its rivalry in wars with France, Britain succeeded in becoming the powerhouse of the world economy. At the start of the 19th century, in 1820, the British Empire, which was Britain plus the 16 colonial possessions, accounted for a meagre 6% of the world's output. However, following Britain's industrialization, by 1870, the British Empire accounted for around 23% of the world economy, of which the UK alone was around 9%. The British Empire, of course, remained around 20% of the world economy until 1918. Now, during um, this same period, the major Asian economies like China and India had been crippled by European expansion and colonization, were no match for uh, Great Britain. China's economy, for example, had declined to around 9%, whereas in 1820, it had still been the largest in the world, accounting for 33% of GDP. In, in contrast, the United States economy in 1820 was an insignificant 1.8%, but it had rapidly increased to overtake China by 1888, and by 1914 it was 18.9% of the global GDP, almost catching up with that of the British Empire. In fact, the whole of Western Europe accounted for 26.2% of global GDP, compared to 18% for the U.S. in 1914. So clearly, a new economic superpower is emerging. It's a new world money developing, so just take us through its impact. The British did not show any major concern in the rise of the American power, as they were more concerned about competing European powers and keeping a close eye on them. So in particular, they were worried about the rising influence and the expansion of Germany and the Russian Empire. So the rivalry between Russia was at the forefront of British geopolitical strategy and came to be known as the Great Game. Britain's greatest imperial possession was India, and the British feared that Russia planned to invade India at some stage as part of their expansion into Central Asia. The Russians, on the other hand, had feared the expansion of British interest in Central Asia. As a result, there was a deep atmosphere of distrust and talk of war between two major European empires. It's interesting that in 1904, uh, Sir Halford Mackinder, uh, considered to be one of the founding fathers of geopolitics and geostrategy, presented a paper which was called The Geographical Pivot of History to the Royal Geographical Society that advanced his famous Heartland Theory. In this paper, Mackinder divided the whole world into three key components to explain important geostrategic issues. Firstly, the world island comprising the interlinked continents of Europe, Asia and Africa, the largest, most populous and richest of all possible land combinations. The second one being the offshore islands, which included the British Isles and the islands of Japan. And the third being the outlying islands, including the continents of North America, South America and Oceania. So you can see how far all this geostrategic planning had gone, Narif. Yes, so if we look at the heartland, this lay uh, at the centre of the world island and it stretched from the Volga to the Yangtze River and from the Himalayas to the Arctic. Uh, Mackinder's view was that any power which controlled the world island that's Eurasia, would control well over 50% of the world's resources. Um, The heartland's size and central position made it the key to controlling the world island and thereafter the whole world. So in the eyes of the great powers, the weakness of some countries was as much a source of worry and instability as the growing strengths of the others. Uh, The Ottoman Empire, for example, which was often described as a sick man of Europe, had been shored up since 1815 by the great powers. Uh, these were, were all competing European powers, and they had no particular affection for the Ottomans, but they wanted to keep each other in check. And the Ottomans were regularly being humiliated and defeated by the now powerful Russian Empire, with the result that Romania, Serbia and Montenegro gained independence by 1878, uh, and Bulgaria gained independence by 1908. So with the continued decline and collapse of the Ottoman Empire uh, around the Balkans, uh, Balkans, all the rivalries between the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Russian Empire began to reappear. 
uh, and this would lead to disastrous consequences for the whole world. Uh, Germany, as we discussed in the last program, was quite late to establish a fully integrated and functional nation-state. It was very late also to colonial expansion in contrast to its European competitors, and most importantly, it lagged far behind Britain and France in taking full advantage of the Industrial Revolution. However, in the wake of railroad construction in 1850, industrialization started to take off in Germany. During the second half of the 19th century, the German industry grew exponentially, and by 1900, Germany was an industrial powerhouse competing with Britain and the United States. In fact, by the 1900s, Germany was the dominant power on the European continent, and its rapidly expanding industry had surpassed Britain's and it was also involved uh, with a naval arms race. Munir? Yes, so in the remake of the Thucydides trap describing the rivalry between ancient Athens and Sparta, at the start of the 20th century, a resurgent and confident Germany believed herself encircled by the French. Russians and the British... The Russians and the French, on the other hand, feared German preeminence in Europe. And Britain wanted to maintain the old balance of power by supporting France and Russia, thus remaining the dominant global power. No single state wanted a major European conflict, but that is what they were heading towards. Yeah, this is the classical Thucydides trap, which uh, the historian Thucydides had explained in relation to the conflict between Sparta and Athens, which we covered in the... Sorry, but it carry on. Yeah, uh, yeah. So at the beginning of 1914, it it was the beginning to dawn on most people that Europe was heading into a prolonged struggle between German-speaking nations, notably the German and Austria, and with the rest of Europe, including Britain, France and Russia. So World War I, between 1914 and 1918, began with the assassination on 28th of June of the Archduke of the Habsburg Empire in Sarajevo by the Serb nationalist. Vienna was determined to punish Serbia, which was viewed as the main state harbouring anti-Hasberg terrorism and terrorists. And when Serbia rejected Vienna's demands, the Hasberg Empire declared war in August 1914. And as a fellow Slavic nation, an ally of Serbia, Russia mobilised to protect Serbia against the oncoming clash with Hasbergs. Germany, being an ally of Austria and fearful of Russia, becoming dominant in the region, launched the war. This, in turn, drew Russia's allies France and Britain, additional powers drawn into the conflict included Ottoman, Turkey, Italy and the United States. And it's believed that some 20 million people perished in the war. And Germany led the central powers in World War I against France, the United Kingdom, Russia, Italy by 1915 and then eventually the United States by 1917. Prior to World War I, both the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire were in turmoil with internal tensions growing by the day. The Ottomans had opted to stand with Germany, whilst the Russians, supported by France and Britain, stood with their ally Serbia, as Munir mentioned. By 1917, the third year of the war, three important things happened that changed the course of the war and, more importantly, changed the course of world history in ways that no one could have imagined. The first historical event occurred on February 1970 when Tsar Nicholas II of Russia was forced out of office by a people-led revolution, the Communist Revolution, and Russia had to withdraw from the war. Inspired by the writings of Karl Marx and other uh, others, Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the Bolshevik Socialist Party and his Red Guards seized the Winter Palace of Tsar Nicholas II and formed a new government. The Tsar, having been put under arrest, was later executed together with his family. The second historical event occurred a few months later in April 1917 when the United States of America got drawn into the war on the side of Britain and France. With America's entry into the war, what may possibly have been a stalemate within Europe ended up as the complete defeat of Germany and her allies, including Ottoman Turkey. 
The third uh, important thing that happened in 1917 was the publication and announcement of the Balfour Declaration, setting out the British goal of establishing in Palestine a national home for the Jewish people, the creation of the State of Israel. This was Britain at its best in applying divide and rule tactics, combined with double diplomacy and contradictory promises. So things don't change, Arif. No, <laughs> absolutely. A, you know, these things were really such a critical thing that even are hurting the world right now. Absolutely, still being played out today. Um, just going back to the point about uh, the Ottoman Empire, and one of the reasons why they were quickly brought to their knees in the Middle East was because the Arabs joined the British to bring Ottoman rule to an end. Um, the British had persuaded the ruler of the holy city of Mecca, Sher Hussein, Sheriff Hussein. Uh, Sheriff Hussein, sorry, that he would support the creation of an independent Arab state if he could galvanize Arab rebels against the Ottoman rulers. Now, whilst the Arab rebels were fighting the Ottomans, led by Lawrence of Arabia, the British, French and Russians had made the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916 to partition the Middle East amongst themselves. Moreover, Britain had courted the Zionists to produce the Balfour Declaration of 1917. Clearly, the views and aspirations of the Palestinian Arabs or the wider Arab diaspora did not matter. Diaspora, rather. Apologies. Absolutely. After World War I, Sheriff Hussein refused to ratify the Treaty of Versailles uh, in protest at the Balfour Declaration uh, and the establishment of British and French mandates in Syria, Iraq and Palestine. He lost favour with the British and in 1924, as they would always do, they replaced him and he was replaced by Abdulaziz bin Abdulrahman al-Saud, known more commonly in the West as Ibn Saud, who founded the modern-day Saudi Arabia. Now, most uh, historians agree that there were two crucial factors that helped Britain and France to defeat Germany. Firstly, the drawing in of the United States, which I mentioned earlier on into World War I, and the support and sacrifices of millions of colonial soldiers from the British Empire. After the withdrawal of Russia to deal with their civil war, Britain and France would most certainly have been defeated, and so the United States filled the gap left by Russia. Munir, this was such an important uh, development, uh, you know, yeah, that's clear, but, but also the sacrifices paid by the colonial uh, soldiers uh, on behalf of Britain and its allies. Just uh, t- tell us a little bit yeah, more. Yes, amazing casualties. So it's also believed that during the First World War, some 50 million Africans and 250 million Indians were involved in a war of which they understood very little against a European enemy who was also unknown to them, yet these nations sent their troops to support the British with the hope that their nation may see freedom after the war was over. So when the war ended, look at what happens. Each dominion insisted on a full recognition of its nationhood. Canada had raised 650,000 men, New Zealand and Australia about 300,000 men, and each of these countries, states, got their way. The West Indies and the black Africans contributed 135,000 men, and India had raised a phenomenal force of 1.5 million men. And what reward did they get? Nothing. They were privileged enough to learn the art of modern warfare. And, that and yet was, the white nations, they got their freedoms. They got their easily. freedoms yeah. and they got everything that they required. And yet the modern warfare was a privilege. It was a privilege, not a, a, a right or, or something which they insisted on. Meanwhile, the Russian Civil War lasted for three years and ended in 1920 with victory for Lenin's Bolshevik. And after consolidation, their powers, the communist regime established a new state of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, the USSR, as everyone knows it, in 1922, which covered Russia, the Ukraine, and we know what's happening in Ukraine now, and the and the Caucasus and the Eastern Territories. Yeah, the Caucasus, mm-hmm. uh, Caucasus the, sorry. which, which yeah. again are, you know, such a difficult area to do. End of the uh, our Fall War I, a defeated and partly occupied Germany was forced to pay war reparations by the Treaty of Versailles and was stripped of its colonies as well as of home territory to be ceded to Belgium, France and Poland and was also banned from uniting with German settled 
regions of Austria. Although World War I devastated the European economies, the British and the French losses were offset by the gains from Ottoman territories in the Middle East and also the German territories from Asia that were divided between the British and the French. So they managed to at least bolster their economies with these gains, uh, Arif. But this treaty was so unfair. Just take us through. Yes, absolutely. So just going back to the Treaty of Versailles, this was supposed to be the peace to end all wars. But actually, later historians have described it as the peace to end all peace. Mm -hmm. And the agreements which were reached in Versailles were so punitive, cynical and destabilizing that Europe failed to recover its economic vitality. This resulting instability, resentment and turmoil was a major cause of the Great Depression, the rise of Hitler and World War II. Um, Professor Geoffrey Sachs writes, and I'll quote, John Maynard Keynes, the greatest economist of the 20th century, served as a young expert on Britain's negotiating team at the Versailles Peace Conference. He was profoundly disheartened by the narrowness of the perspective of the major powers and the punitive nature of the settlement imposed on Germany. In a remarkable piece of analysis and protest, Keynes' Economic Consequences of the Peace, written at the end of the negotiations in 1919, warned that the harshness of the settlement, and especially the heavy reparation payments levied on Germany, would lead to economic disarray in Europe and the likelihood of another disaster to follow. And unfortunately, that prophecy proved true. When the First World War ended, the economies of the British Empire and the United States were about the same size. However, from that point, the United States share continued to rise, reaching more than 25% at the end of World War II. While the British imperial share continued to decline, falling below 10% of the world economy by 1950, um, which we'll cover again after the Second World War, a big dip caused by India attaining independence in 1947. By 1950, America's economic high noon, its share of world GDP was 27.3%, compared with 6.5% for the UK, 5% for Germany and 26.2% for the whole of Western Europe. Meanwhile, India had been divided into two states, India and Pakistan, and China was trying to pull itself out of poverty and rebuild itself under Mao Zedong, the leadership of the Communist Party. So you can see the greatest beneficiary was clearly the United States, whilst Europe had devastated itself, in particular Britain. Now, despite the competitive nature and rivalry with other European nations, the British always claimed that they had a special relationship with the United States compared to other nations. After all, they were both English-speaking and shared a common culture. So if we consider the British-American world combined, then this hegemonic duo accounted for around 40% of the world economy from about 1900 to World War II, and even now this special relationship is much touted. Uh, this was a fact that remained in the forefront of French and German minds in Europe, as well as other major nations like Russia and China after the end of uh, uh, the First World War. So, uh, again, take us to the aftermath and build up to the Second World War, uh, Munir. President Woodrow Wilson of uh, the United States, whilst working out the peace treaty in the Palace of Versailles, with 51 of the nations suggested the setting up of the council called the League of Nations, so that wars could be prevented with hopes of a brighter future. America led the recovery as it had come out of the war with its land intact and her economy in good shape. However, stability did not return to Europe after World War I, and just as predicted by Keynes, Germany went through one of the worst hyperinflations in history, unleashing untold horrors on the German people and their economy. So let's just uh, look at what's happening in terms of the cost of living crisis in UK and compare this with what happened in Germany. So by the autumn of 1920, the strains uh, on the economy were apparent with inflation going out of control. The food for a family of four person, which cost 60 marks a week in April 1919, cost 198 marks. By September 1920 and 230 marks by November 1920. 
certain items such as lard, ham, tea and eggs rose to between 30 and 40 times the pre-war price. And by 1922, a litre of milk which cost 7 marks in April 1922 and cost 16 marks in August and by mid-September cost 26 marks. In only nine months, the weekly bill of an identical food basket had risen from 370 marks to 2,615. I mean, you often see, don't you, <laughs> with the German economy, that it was a terrible state of affairs. Sorry, we yeah. carry on, yeah. Yeah, it's terrible in terms of comparing ourselves with now. As expected with this level of chaos, Germany was not able to meet its war reparations, as you understood, payments. So as a punishment, France responded by occupying the Ruhr, 11th of January 1923 to 25th of August 1925. Germany's coal and resource-rich industrial region. I mean, this was the heart of the commercial world for Germany, which they occupied. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the workers of Germany in the Ruhr resisted by striking, which is the only thing that they could do, and the industrial heart of Germany's practically stopped beating. In order to pay the striking workers, the government simply printed more money. And this flood of money led to hyperinflation. You're talking about super hyperinflation. As the money was printed, the more prices rose. So prices ran out of control. For example, a loaf of bread, which cost 250 marks in January, 250 marks in 1923, had risen to, I was... Just thinking, is this correct? Yeah, absolutely. I was stunned by these figures. million marks. <laughs> I thought we got these figures wrong. No, no, no. 200,000 million yeah. marks in November 1923. And by autumn 1923, it cost more than to print a note than the note was worth, which is ironic uh, in terms of what's happened. I mean, it really, it was a terrible state of affairs. And uh, as Keynes uh, had uh, predicted, uh, you know, when uh, Professor Jeffrey Sachs uh, quoted him, Germany finally halted the hyperinflation in November 1923 by creating an alternative currency, the Rentenmark, which was then replaced by a more popular Reichsmark, a currency backed by gold. Although Germany eventually managed to bring stability to its currency and got inflation under control, the damage to the economy and public confidence had been massive. In 1923, a young Adolf Hitler, the leader of the Nazi party, attempted to seize government power in a failed coup in Munich and was imprisoned with a sentence of five years. In jail, he dictated the first volume of his autobiography and political manifesto, Mein Kampf, My Struggle, translated as. After his early release in 1924, Hitler gained popular support by attacking the Treaty of Versailles and promoting pan-Germanism, anti-Semitism and anti-communism with charismatic oratory and Nazi propaganda. He frequently denounced international capitalism and communism as part of a Jewish conspiracy. So you could see his rise to power coming clearly. So uh, despite all of this economic and political chaos... Uh, Germany saw a flowering of German science and high culture before the rise of the Nazi regime. German uh, recipients dominated the Nobel Prizes in science with names like William, Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen, Albert Einstein, Max Planck and Werner Heisenberg in the field of physics. Chemistry likewise was dominated by German professors and researchers uh, at the great chemical companies such as BASF and Bayer. And in the automobile industry, Carl Benz and Rudolf Diesel were also pivotal figures of engineering. And of course, these are well-known household names even to this day. Just as Germany was beginning to recover from the economic crisis in 1929, the world was plunged into the worst economic slump in modern history. Trade and prices collapsed, millions were thrown out of work, and on the 29th of October 1929 the New York stock market crashed, also known as the Wall Street crash. Protective tariffs were set up worldwide to save domestic industry, adding to problems, and from a workforce of 20 million, almost 9 million Germans, that's almost 50%, were thrown out of work. At the same time, the crisis provoked extreme nationalism, paving the way to dictatorship. And in Germany, Hitler obviously took advantage and leveraged the mass unemployment to gain support for the Nazi party, Uh, and he quickly rose to political power in the 1930s. 
This is probably a good place now to stop for part one and then we'll carry on in uh, part two as we prepare for the rise of the Second World War. So you've been listening to the Living History program. We've been talking about uh, uh, the clash between capitalism and communism. So uh, we'll be joining you again. Please do send us your feedback on uh, our Twitter handle, which is at VI Living History. And do visit our website, www.voiceofislam.co.uk. And uh, under the programs, you'll see the variety of programs we do on living history. So we'll be back with you shortly. So welcome back, listeners, to uh, part two of this program, uh, program six on uh, the clash uh, between capitalism and uh, communism. So in the first part, uh, we discussed the lead up to the First World War and the aftermath and then building up towards the Second World War. That's, I think, where we ended. So in uh, January 1933... Adolf Hitler was appointed as the Chancellor of Germany and the Nazi regime succeeded in restoring economic prosperity and ended mass unemployment using heavy spending on the military while suppressing labor unions and strikes. The return of prosperity gave the Nazi party enormous popularity with only minor isolated and subsequently unsuccessful cases of resistance among the German population over the 12 years of its rule. Worried by these and many other developments, Albert Einstein, one of the greatest uh, scientists of the 20th century, a Jew by birth and whose books were being burnt in Germany, renounced his German citizenship. At a mass meeting held at the Albert Hall in London in 1933, he issued an important warning. And this is a quote from him uh, from that meeting. The great war and the privations of the people resulting from it are in some measure responsible for the present dangerous upheavals. So he also actually said the Treaty of Versailles, you know, in the First World War had a lot to answer for. Uh, Discontent breeds hatred and hatred leads to acts of violence, revolution and often war. And how right he proved to be. The Nazi party quickly established a totalitarian regime and Nazi Germany made increasingly aggressive territorial demands threatening war if they were not met. Hitler went on to remilitarize the Rhineland in 1936. He formed an alliance with Mussolini's Italy also in 1936 and he sent massive military aid to Franco uh, in the Spanish Civil War of 1936 to 1939. Uh, and in 1938, he annexed uh, Austria, uh, took over Czechoslovakia uh, after the British and the French appeasement of the Munich Agreement of 1938. And he formed a peace pact with the Joseph Stalin Soviet Union in August 1939. Uh, pretty clever the way he managed all this. And finally, he invaded Poland on the 1st of September 1939. And this, of course, resulted in Britain and France declaring war on Germany and two days later and World War II in Europe began. So you could see the whole build-up. Uh, Munir, uh, again, take us through this devastating period of human history. It was indeed. And at first, Germany was very successful in its military operations. In less than three months, from April to June 1940, Germany conquered Denmark, Norway, the Low Countries, and France, which is phenomenal, and the unexpectedly swift defeat of France resulted in an upswing in Hitler's popularity, an upsurge in war fever. Germany's armed forces invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941, and as in Napoleon's case, this proved to be a fatal miscalculation. So in 1942, the German invasion of the Soviet Union faltered, and after the United States entered the war, German cities became targets for massive Allied bombing raids. The air campaign also paved the way for a massive Soviet force, for a massive Allied seaborne invasion of northern France in June 1944. So between 1944 and 1945, Soviet forces completely or partially liberated Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary, Yugoslavia, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Austria, Denmark and Norway. And by late 1944, the United States, Canada, France and Great Britain were closing in on Germany in West. Nazi Germany 
was collapsed as Berlin was taken by the Soviet Union's Red Army in a fight to the death on the city streets. Two million Soviet troops took part in the assault and they faced 750,000 German troops. 78,000 to 305,000 Soviets were killed. 325,000 German civilians and soldiers were killed. Hitler committed suicide on the 30th of April 1945 and the final German instrument of surrender was finally signed on the 8th of May 1945. Now the First World War was pretty bad but the Second World War was the largest and bloodiest conflict in human history resulting in the death of over 55 to 60 million people including 17 million Soviet citizens and transforming, of course, the international order. The majority of the military casualties were citizens of the Soviet Union, China, Germany and Japan, but the dead were mourned the world over. After four years of destruction, Europe lay in ruins, its economy shattered. The Second World War had exceeded by far the terrible cost of the first, as I said earlier. The Nazi regime was particularly hostile towards Jews who became the target of unending anti-Semitic propaganda attacks. In 1941, the Nazi leadership decided to implement a plan that they called the Final Solution, which came to be known as the Holocaust. Under the plan, Jews and other lesser races, along with political opponents from Germany as well as occupied countries, were systematically murdered at extermination camps. In total, approximately 17 million people were killed during this Holocaust period. In the end, Germany was defeated by sacrifice of millions of Russian lives, the steely determination of the British and their colonial troops, and the industrial power of the United States. Japan was also defeated in Asia, by a combination of factors, but the use of the nuclear bomb by the US on an innocent population left many moral and ethical questions which remain to this day. After the war, Germany was split up into West Germany under the control of the United States, France and Britain, and East Germany under the control of the Soviet Union, and Austria was again made a separate country. So, again, we are seeing the legacy of the end of World War II, Arif. Yes, so obviously uh, World War II, after this, this sounded the death knell for European empires, um, a process of colonization that began in the early 1500s rapidly started unraveling after 1945. Uh, we mentioned this in the first part. Um, and there was much agitation in European colonies, with educated elites from these colonies calling the Europeans to offer them independence. Um, This feeling was particularly strong in India, uh, and with charismatic leaders like Gandhi, Nehru and Jinnah, many of the leaders were placed behind bars and many protests were put down by the Europeans brutally. However, there was a rebellion and revolution in the air, and one by one the British and other Europeans had to either give independence, or at least a promise of independence, when certain conditions had been satisfied. Um, Another aspect uh, of the aftermath of World War II was that it produced two new superpowers, the United States of America and the USSR. The Soviet economy was only a small fraction of America's, perhaps around one-third, but the Soviet Union was a military power, which by 1949 had nuclear weapons, and it was rich in natural resources across its vast territory. Through the socialist-communist ideology, the USSR posed quite a challenge to the US and the Western world, and the two countries competed internationally for allies, resources, and military advantage, and so began the Cold War after World War II. Although the USSR got a big boost to their confidence when the communists in China took control from the nationalists. After the uh, Second World War, the United States positioned itself as the leader of the free world and committed itself to containing communism, known as the Truman Doctrine, and lent support to countries fighting wars against communist revolutionaries, including in Greece in 1947, Korea 1950-53, and then the long and draining conflict in Vietnam between 1961-1973. to 
At the same time, the U.S. tried to bolster these efforts by creating security blocks like NATO in Europe in 1949. The Soviet Union responded with a military alliance of its own called the Warsaw Pact and together with Communist China provided military aid and political support to nations fighting against colonialism and imperialism. In Western Europe, security and economic uh, revival was totally dependent on the United States, which pumped around $12 billion into Europe as part of the approved Marshall Plan, uh, officially known as the European Recovery Programme in 1948. This certainly helped uh, Western and Southern Europe to recover and encourage greater cooperation amongst the Western European states. In 1957, France, Germany, Italy and the Benelux countries moved to set up a full customs union called the European Economic Community, the EEC. And the EEC made another war between France and Germany unthinkable. And in 1973, Britain took the momentous decision to join with the EEC. In 1993, the EEC renamed itself the European Union. So you can see there was quite a, a sort of interchange in the international order after the Second World War. Um, would you just explain us a little bit the capitalist system and co- communist system because we're talking about it quite a bit? Mm, the economies of Europe and the United States run on a system called capitalism, which is, is still present today, a system that has been shaped by the work of the Scottish economist Adam Smith, acknowledged widely as the father of economics. So what is capitalism? Capitalism is based around a free market economy, meaning an economy that distributes goods and services according to the laws of supply and demand. The law of demand says that increased demand of a product means an increase in price for that product. Signs of a higher demand typically led to increased production. The greater supply helps level prices out to the point that only the strongest competitors remain. Competitors try to earn the most profit by selling their goods for as much as they can whilst keeping costs low. So in capitalist economies, governments play a minimal role in deciding what to produce, how much to produce, when to produce it, leaving the cost of goods and services to market forces. So when the entrepreneurs spot openings in the marketplace, they rush in to fill the vacuum. In contrast, the economies of the Soviet Union and and Communist China have been shaped by the ideas of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. In socialist and communist nations, important economic decisions are not left to the markets or decided by self-interested individuals. Instead, the government, which owns or controls much of the economy's resources, decides what's needed, when it's needed, and how it will be produced. This approach is also referred to as central planning. Advocates of socialism argue that the shared ownership of resources and the impact of central planning allow for a more equal distribution of goods and services and a fairer society. Now, in in theory, economic inequality is reduced along with economic insecurity. Basic necessities are provided the government itself can produce the goods people require to meet their needs, even if the production of these goods does not result in a profit. Under socialism, there is more room for value judgments with less attention paid to calculations involving profit in nothing but profit. Although socialism sounds more compassionate, it does have its shortcomings. One disadvantage is that people have less to strive for and feel less connected to the fruits of their efforts, with their basic needs already provided for. There are fewer incentives to innovate and increase efficiency. As a result, the engines of economic growth are potentially weaker. Um, that true? You're an accountant, uh, Arif. Uh, well, if we contrast that with uh, capitalist economies, uh, people have strong incentives to work hard, uh, which leads to the increase in efficiency and usually producing superior products. By rewarding ingenuity and innovation, the market maximises economic growth and individual prosperity while providing a variety of goods and services for consumers. By encouraging the production of desirable goods and services and discouraging the production of unwanted or unnecessary items, the marketplace self-regulates, leaving less room for government interference and mismanagement. 
However, under capitalism, because market mechanisms are mechanical rather than normative and agnostic in regard to social effects, there are no guarantees that each person's basic needs will be met. Markets also create cycles of boom and bust, and an imperfect world allow for crony capitalism, monopolies, and other means of cheating or manipulating the system. And we see that today in most of the capitalist economies of the world. Um, as we said earlier, at the end of the Second World, Britain's economy was devastated, and the US came out even stronger than after the First World War. And, of course, the United States decided to take advantage of this. And in July 1944, the gathered delegates from 44 allied nations um, at Mountain Resort in Bretton Woods in New Hampshire. And it was agreed that the U.S. dollar now was to become the global reserve currency, replacing the British pound. Um, the British tried to argue against it, but uh, there was no chance of that because clearly uh, the United States now was a superpower so the U.S. dollar became the world currency, and on the back of this, uh, various institutions were set up primarily by the United States, including the International Monetary Fund uh, and the World Bank as well, uh, which early on was called the International Bank of Reconstruction and Development. Um, so, you know, and these are play a major role to even uh, now. So, Manir, uh, a new world emerging, clearly. That's right. In the aftermath of the Second World War, Financial pressures, war weariness and local opposition led Britain and France to abandon their colonial possessions across the world, especially the Middle East, a region that was of vital importance to the West, as it had the biggest oil reserves in the world. However, the void was very quickly filled by United States and, as expected by the Soviet Union, both superpowers anxious to increase their influence and hold in the region to secure access to the region's oil reserves. Fearing Soviet expansion, the USA aligned itself very closely with Israel and Saudi Arabia and Iran, all of which became client states of the United States. The Soviet Union supported Egypt and Syria, and after the Iranian revolution in 1979, also supported Iran. The most influential leader to emerge in the Arab world was Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser, an Arab nationalist who became leader in 1954. However, after some considerable success and massive appeal across the Arab world, Israel, Britain and France combined through a series of military and highly damaging financial and political campaigns to undermine him. Nasser died in 1970, very disappointed with the division in the Arab and the Muslim world and also annoyed with the way that he and his country had been treated by the West. The post-war American economy continued to grow, with U.S. GDP increasing from $212 billion in 1945 to $503 billion in 1960 and $977 billion in 1970. However, from 1950 to 1969, as Europe and Japan started to recover from World War II, the U.S. share of the world's economy output dropped significantly from 35% to 27%. And furthermore, a negative balance of payments, growing public debt incurred by the American wars, especially the Vietnam War, and monetary inflation by the Federal Reserve significantly weakened the position of the dollar. This is when you get overstretched, imperial overstretch, we've talked about in the previous programs, well, just like in the Roman world, the Americans loved creating war intentions, and of course it messed up their economy. This of course annoyed a number of um, uh, emerging powers, and in France, um, uh, the Bretton Woods system, for example, was called America's exorbitant privilege by Charles de Gaulle, uh, the French president, uh, who had raised his concerns in 1965, and I'll give you this quote uh, from him. The fact that many countries accept as a principle that dollars are as good as gold leads Americans to get into debt and to get into debt for free at the expense of other countries. Because what the U.S. owes them, it is paid, at least in part, with dollars. They are the only ones allowed to emit. And even now they keep printing you know, freely American dollars, and that was the problem that de Gaulle pointed to. And de Gaulle, of course, was annoyed, and he wanted to pull his gold out from America because he didn't trust the dollar and whatever, and the Germans uh, undermined him at that stage. Uh, but, of course, la later on, 
uh, things got so bad that even the Germans had to say this is uh, e- enough is enough. So Arif, 1971 was a, a key period. Uh. Yes, absolutely. So by May 1971, the dollar dropped in value against the European currencies um, and West Germany finally left the Bretton Woods system, followed by Switzerland. Uh, this led to pressure which began to intensify on the United States for themselves to leave Bretton Woods uh, as the US registered its first trade deficit since the Second World War. So you could see that the power of America and their influence was declining. Um, on the 15th of August 1971, uh, President Richard Nixon went on national television to make a historic announcement. He announced that the US was banning the conversion of the dollar to gold an extreme measure intended to end an ongoing currency war that had destroyed faith in the US dollar. He also imposed national price controls and surprised international markets by imposing a 10% surtax on foreign imports. Now, according to GATT rules, uh, GATT stands for the General Agreement on uh, on Tariffs and Trade, there was no justification whatsoever for the 10% surtax but the U.S. insisted that it would be removed when there was an improvement in the balance of payments uh, They were the superpower. They could do what they wanted. They basically set the terms and conditions. Um, The U.S. demanded a rapid £13 billion swing in its trade balance from a $5 billion deficit to an $8 billion surplus. Uh, And this demand was non-negotiable. So the Europeans and Japan were in shock, but there was nothing that they could do. Uh, as they were so reliant on the U.S. for protection from the Soviet threat. And you can see the same being played out right in the current system against the Russians. So anyway, in, in addition to President Nixon's actions to defend the dollar, the 1970s were to usher in a number of other game-changing developments that would have a massive impact on the U.S. and the global economy. These included, firstly, the 1972 Nixon visit to China, by 1972, communist China began to consider the Soviet Union as a greater threat than the United States. After years of diplomatic isolation, China and the U.S. leadership agreed to meet through their mutual ally Pakistan. President Richard Nixon dubbed his visit the week that changed the world. These were in his words. Uh, repercussions of the Nixon visit continue to this day. The trip resulted in China's opening to the world in economic parity with capitalist countries. It also shifted the Cold War balance, driving a wedge between the Soviet Union and China, resulting in a significant Soviet concession to the US. And Arif, the second was the 73 oil crisis. Take us through that Yes, one. so this was known as the first oil crisis. I think we all know how important oil is. Um, and this was where the members of the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Companies, also known as OPEC, they proclaimed an oil embargo. Um, And the embargo was targeted at nations that had supported Israel during the Yom Kippur War. Uh, This was a war launched by Arab nations to reclaim lands occupied by Israel in 1967. So the main nations that were targeted were the United States, Canada, Great Britain, the Netherlands and Japan, uh, although some others were included later on. And as a result of this embargo... uh, By the end of the embargo in March 1974, the price of oil had risen nearly 300%, from $3 per barrel to nearly $12 per barrel globally. Um, And this embargo obviously caused an oil crisis or a shock with many short and long-term effects on global politics and the global economy. And the third major development in the 70s was the Iranian revolution of 1979 when the Ayatollahs took over and the Shah was dethroned. And again, this created a major oil shock and uh, the impact of the 1973 crisis and 1979 and also the change by Nixon in 1970s created a major pressure on the markets. And um, there was actually a a sort of stock market uh, crash of uh, between 1973 and uh, 1974. So a a, a real problem. Uh, So Munir... Take us how the, uh, cleverly the United States uh, linked up with the Saudis uh, yes. uh, to save the dollar. And they're always clever in uh, uh, handling anyway. The United States found an ingenious way of keeping the dollar as the global currency despite removing its link to gold. America had developed a very close relationship with Saudi Arabia, the biggest oil producer in the world, and it turned to this leading Muslim country to get 
its economy out of the mess. So in 1974, the US and Saudi Arabia made the agreement that all oil purchases would be done in US in dollars, thus giving rise to the petrodollar, which still rules supreme to this day. Not only that, but the reserves of the money generated would be channeled through the North American financial system, which of course is run with dollars. And a year later, in 1975, the OPEC countries joined in. And as the oil market is the largest commodity market in the world, the dollar once again took the crown for being the global reserve currency. In other words, Saudi Arabia came to the dollar rescue, but they extracted a price from the US. That price was the unquestioning loyalty and support of the United States for Saudi Arabia in whatever it wanted to do in the region or the Muslim world, as long as it didn't upset Israel. So that was very cleverly done by the Americans, but uh, they were still uh, facing um, uh, problems, especially with uh, communism. And um, um, when the Russians invaded Afghanistan, um, the Americans, uh, especially through uh, Brzezinski, the national security advisor of President Jimmy Carter, he uh, advised American support for the Mujahideen uh, really to defeat the Russians. And that was really a, a, another sort of playbook from the great game we talked about before, uh, creating a Vietnam moment for the Russians. And um, uh, interestingly, listeners will know that uh, Mujahideen were supplied and trained by the Americans and people like Osama bin Laden were given great support to kick the Russians uh, out. Fighting against the godless Russians uh, went hand in hand with the God-believing Americans and uh, Wahhabi sort of uh, believing uh, Muslims. Um, The uh, Soviets paid a heavy price uh, for this and uh, eventually they were defeated, kicked out of Afghanistan. And of course, the Americans left Afghanistan to uh, uh, rot. Meanwhile, the Russians were getting weaker and uh, weaker. And um, the Americans were playing more games in the Middle East, uh, really playing quite a dirty role in the Iran-Iraq war, which was one of the longest wars between two Muslim nations. Um, And the Americans ended up supplying both Iraq and uh, Iran in this uh, particular case. Uh, Munir, if you take us um, through the build-up to the first Iraq war, uh, and w- why really the the war took place? Because there could have been a negotiated settlement. Uh. Absolutely. Negotiations for Iraq's withdrawal from Kuwait proved to be fruitless as the US, Europe and their Arab allies gathered one of the biggest military forces ever gathered to bring Iraq to its knees. Operation Desert Storm, I remember it well, yes. was launched to show that the lone superpower, the United States of America, would not tolerate anyone who didn't listen to to what the US had to say on international matters. The most sophisticated weapon in the world were to be used to display the US might. As Allied bombing lit up in the night skies of Baghdad, the armies picked off dead or dying Iraqi soldiers. Americans and American think tanks And the US media were saying in a very coordinated manner that this was to be the American century. A new world order was going to be shaped by the United States of America. And according to Robert Fisk, the Arabs spent $84 billion underwriting the Anglo-American operation against Saddam in 1990 and 1991. That's three times what Fahad gave to Saddam for the Iran war. And the Saudi share alone came to $27.5 billion. And in all, the Arabs sustained a loss of $620 billion because of the 1990 Iraq invasion of Kuwait. And almost all of which was paid over to the United States and its allies. But Washington was still complaining in August 1991 that Saudi Arabia and Kuwait still owed $7.5 billion. And Western... Wars in the Middle East, it seems, could be fought for profit as well as victory, which was in The Independent, which Fisk had uh, actually published on the 10th of November 2010. So clearly capitalist world, and especially America, had won communism in Russia, in particular had collapsed uh, with the Soviet Union, although the Chinese Communist Party kept control, and uh, we will come to that in the next uh, program as well. 
But meanwhile, the Muslim world was being devastated by this sort of war on terror and devastation of the Middle East, which is an ongoing affair. So, just to conclude this uh, program, um, the United Nations was set up at the end of the Second World War as an international institution that was to uphold international law, establish peace across all nations and prevent any major war. Whilst the United Nations had done much to improve the lives of many citizens across the world and its peacekeeping role, um, and it's been appreciated by there are many who have criticised its roles uh, as well. We will cover some of this in the next programme, but uh, hope listeners uh, have found this enlightening and uh, uh, useful. Thank you to both Munir and uh, Arif uh, as well. Inshallah, we will join you in our next program. Please do give us your feedback on Twitter, hashtag at VI Living History, and go to our website, www.voiceofislam.co.uk. And under the programs, you can listen to a whole variety of our programs. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum.